Section 19 of Tish, Chronicle of Her Excursions and Escapades, by Mary Roberts Reinhardt. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Chapter 5 The last thing I recall of Mr. MacDonald that day is seeing him standing there in the water, holding the tray, with the teapot steaming under his nose, and gazing after us with an air of bewilderment that did not deceive us at all. As I look back, there is only one thing we might have noticed at the time. This was the fact that Hutchins, having started the engine, was sitting beside it on the floor of the boat and laughing in the cruelest possible manner. As I said to Aggie at the time, a spy is a spy and entitled to punishment if discovered, but no young woman should laugh over so desperate a situation. I come now to the denouement of this exciting period. It had been Tish's theory that the red-haired man should not be taken into our confidence. If there was a reward for the capture of the spy, we ourselves intended to have it. The steamer was due the next day but one. Tish was in favour of not waiting, but of at once going in the motorboat to the town, some thirty miles away, and telling of our capture. But Hutchins claimed there was not sufficient gasoline for such an excursion. That afternoon we went in the motor launch to where Tish had hidden the green canoe, and with a hatchet rendered it useless. The workings of the subconscious mind are marvellous. In the midst of chopping, Tish suddenly looked up. Have you noticed, she said, that the detective is always watching our camp? That's all he has to do, Aggie suggested. Stuff and nonsense. Didn't he follow you into the swamp? Does Hutchins ever go out in the canoe that he doesn't go out also? I'll tell you what has happened. She's young and pretty, and he's fallen in love with her. I must say it sounded reasonable. He never bothered about the motorboat, but the instant she took the canoe and started out, he was hovering somewhere near. She's noticed it, Tish went on. That's what she was quarrelling about with him yesterday. How are we to know, said Aggie, who was gathering up the scraps of the green canoe and building a fire under them, how are we to know they are not old friends, meeting thus in the wilderness? Fate plays strange tricks, Tish. I lived in the same street with Mr. Wiggins for years and never knew him until one day when my umbrella turned wrong side out in a gust of wind. Fate fiddlesticks, said Tish. There's no such thing as fate in affairs of this sort. It's all instinct, the instinct of the race to continue itself. This Aggie regarded as indelicate, and she was rather cool to Tish the balance of the day. Our prisoner spent most of the day at the end of the island toward us, sitting quietly, as we could see through the glasses. We watched carefully, fearing at any time to see the Indian paddling toward him. Tish was undecided what to do in such an emergency, except to intercept him and explain, threatening him also with having attempted to carry the incriminating papers. As it happened, however, the entire camp had gone for a two-day's deer hunt, and before they returned the whole thing had come to its surprising end. Late in the afternoon, Tish put her theory of the red-haired man to the test. Hutchins, she said, 
Miss Lizzie and I will cook the dinner if you want to go in the canoe to Harvey's Bay for water lilies. Hutchins at once said she did not care a rap for water lilies, but, seeing a determined glint in Tish's eye, she added that she would go for frogs if Tish wanted her out of the way. Don't talk like a child, Tish retorted. Who said I wanted you out of the way? It is absolutely true that the moment Hutchins put her foot into the canoe, the red-haired man put down his fishing rod and rose, and she had not taken three strokes with the paddle before he was in the blue canoe. Hutchins saw him just then and scowled. The last we saw of her, she was moving rapidly up the river, and the detective was dropping slowly behind. They both disappeared finally into the bay, and Tish drew a long breath. Typical, she said curtly. He's sent here to watch a dangerous man, and spends his time pursuing the young woman who hates the sight of him. When women achieve the suffrage, they will put none but married men in positions of trust. Hutchins and the detective were still out of sight when supper time came. The spy supper weighed on us, and at last Tish attempted to start the motor launch. We had placed the supper and the small raft aboard, and Aggie was leaning over the edge, untying the painter, not a man, but a rope, when unexpectedly the engine started at the first revolution of the wheel. It darted out to the length of the rope, where it was checked abruptly, the shock throwing Aggie entirely out and into the stream. Tish caught the knife from the supper tray to cut us loose, and while Tish cut, I pulled Aggie in, wet as she was. The boat was straining and panting, and on being released, it sprang forward like a dog unleashed. Aggie had swallowed a great deal of water and was most disagreeable, but the Mebby was going remarkably well, and there seemed to be every prospect that we should get back to the camp in good order. Alas for human hopes, Mr. MacDonald was not very agreeable. You know, he said, as he waited for his supper to float within reach, you needn't be so blamed radical about everything you do. If you object to my hanging round, why not just say so? If I'm too obnoxious, I'll clear out. Obnoxious is hardly the word, said Tish. How long am I to be a prisoner? I shall send letters off by the first boat. He caught the raft just then and examined the supper with interest. Of course things might be worse, he said, but it's dirty treatment anyhow, and it's darn humiliating. Somebody I know is having a good time at my expense. It's heartless. That's what it is, heartless. Well, we left him, the engine starting nicely and Aggie being wrapped in a tarpaulin, but about a hundred yards above the island it began to slow down and shortly afterward it stopped altogether. As the current caught us, we luckily threw out the anchor, for the engine refused to start again. It was then we saw the other canoes. The girl in the pink tam-o'-shanter was in the first one. They glanced at us curiously as they passed, and the PTS, that is the way we grew to speak of the pink tam-o'-shanter, raised one hand in the air, which is a form of canoe greeting, probably less upsetting to the equilibrium than a vigorous waving of the arm. It was just then, I believe, 
that they saw our camp and headed for it. The rest of what happened is most amazing. They stopped at our landing and unloaded their canoes. Though twilight was falling, we could see them distinctly, and what we saw was that they calmly took possession of the camp. Good gracious, Tish cried. The girls have gone into the tent, and somebody's working at the stove. The impertinence! Our situation was acutely painful. We could do nothing but watch. We called, but our voices failed to reach them, and Aggie took a chill, partly cold and partly fury. We sat there while they ate the entire supper. They were having a very good time. Now and then somebody would go into the tent and bring something out, and there would be shrieks of laughter. We learned afterward that part of the amusement was caused by Aggie's false front, which one of the wretches put on as a beard. It was while thus distracted that Aggie suddenly screamed, and a moment later Mr. MacDonald climbed over the side and into the boat, dripping. "'Don't be alarmed,' he said. "'I'll go back and be a prisoner again just as soon as I've fired the engine. I couldn't bear to think of the lady who fell in, sitting here indefinitely and taking cold.' He was examining the engine while he spoke. "'Have visitors, I see,' he observed, as calmly as though he were not dripping all over the place. "'Intruders, not visitors,' Tish said angrily. "'I never saw them before.' "'Rather pretty, the one with the pink cap. "'May I examine the gasoline supply?' "'There was no gasoline.' He shrugged his shoulders. "'I'm afraid no amount of mechanical genius I intended to offer you will start her,' he said. "'But the young lady, Hutchins is her name, I believe, will see you here and come after you, of course.' "'Well, well, there was no denying that, spy or no spy, his presence was a comfort. "'He offered to swim back to the island and be a prisoner again, "'but Tish said magnanimously that there was no hurry.' On Aggie's offering half of her tarpaulin against the wind, which had risen, he accepted. "'Your Miss Hutchins is reckless, isn't she?' he said, when he was comfortably settled. "'She's a strong swimmer, but a canoe is uncertain at the best.' "'She's in no danger,' said Tish. "'She has a devoted admirer watching out for her.' "'The deuce she has!' His voice was quite interested. "'Why? Who on earth?' "'Your detective,' said Aggie softly. "'He's quite mad about her. "'The way he follows her and the way he looks at her. "'It's thrilling.' "'Mr. MacDonald said nothing for quite a while. "'The canoe party had evidently eaten everything they could find, "'and somebody had brought out a banjo and was playing. "'Tish, unable to vent her anger, "'suddenly turned on Mr. MacDonald. "'If you think,' she said, that the grocery list fooled us, it didn't. Grocery list? That's what I said. How did you get my grocery list? So she told him, and how she had deciphered it, and how the word dynamite had only confirmed her early suspicions. His only comment was to say, Good heavens, in a smothered voice. It was the extractor that made me suspicious, she finished. What were you going to extract? Teeth? And so, 
When my Indian was swimming, you went through his things? It's the most astounding thing I ever. My dear lady, an extractor is used to get the hooks out of fish. It was no cipher, I assure you. I needed an extractor and I ordered it. The cipher you speak of is only a remarkable coincidence. Huh, said Tish, and the paper you dropped in the train, was that a coincidence? That's not my secret, he said, and turned sulky at once. Don't tell me, Tish said triumphantly, that any young man comes here absolutely alone without a purpose. I had a purpose, all right, but it was not to blow up a railroad train. Apparently he thought he had said too much, for he relapsed into silence after that, with an occasional muttering. It was eight o'clock when Hutchins's canoe came into sight. She was paddling easily, but the detective was far behind and moving slowly. She saw the camp with its uninvited guests, and then she saw us. The detective, however, showed no curiosity, and we could see that he made for his landing and stumbled exhaustedly up the bank. Hutchins drew up beside us. He'll not try that again, I think, she said in her crisp voice. He's out of training. He panted like a motor launch. Who are our visitors? Here her eyes fell on Mr. MacDonald, and her face set in the dusk. You'll have to go back and get some gasoline, Hutchins. What made you start out without looking? And send the vandals away. If they wait until I arrive, I'll be likely to do them some harm. I have never been so outraged. Let me go for gasoline in the canoe, said Mr. MacDonald. He leaned over the thwart and addressed Hutchins. You're worn out, he said. I promise to come back and be a perfectly well-behaved prisoner again. Thanks, no. I'm wet. The exercise will warm me. Is it possible, she said in a withering tone that was lost on us at the time, that you brought no dumbbells with you? If we had had any doubts, they should have been settled then, but we never suspected. It is incredible looking back. The dusk was falling, and I am not certain of what followed. It was, however, something like this. Mr. MacDonald muttered something angrily and made a motion to get into the canoe. Hutchins replied that she would not have help from him if she died for it. The next thing we knew she was in the launch, and the canoe was floating off on the current. Aggie squealed, and Mr. MacDonald, instead of swimming after the thing, merely folded his arms and looked at it. You know, he said to Hutchins, you have so unpleasant a disposition that somebody we both know of is better off than he thinks he is. Tish's fury knew no bounds, for there we were marooned and two of us wet to the skin. I must say for Hutchins, however, that when she learned about Aggie, she was bitterly repentant and insisted on putting her own sweater on her. But there we were, and there we should likely stay. It was quite dark by that time, and we sat in the launch, rocking gently. The canoeing party had lighted a large fire on the beach, using the driftwood we had so painfully accumulated. We sat in silence, except that Tish 
who was watching our camp, said once bitterly that she was glad there were three beds in the tent. The girls of the canoeing party would be comfortable. After a time, Tish turned on Mr. McDonald sharply. Since you claim to be no spy, she said, perhaps you will tell us what brings you alone to this place. Don't tell me it's fish. I've seen you reading with a line out. You're no fisherman. He hesitated. No, he admitted. I'll be frank, Miss Carberry. I did not come to fish. What brought you? Love, he said in a low tone. I don't expect you to believe me, but it's the honest truth. Love, Tish scoffed. Perhaps I'd better tell you the story, he said. It's long and, and rather sad. Love stories, Hutchins put in coldly, are terribly stupid, except to those concerned. That, he retorted, is because you have never been in love. You are young and, you will pardon the liberty, attractive, but you are totally prosaic and unromantic. Indeed, she said, and relapsed into silence. These other ladies, Mr. MacDonald went on, will understand the strangeness of my situation when I explain that the young lady I care for is very near, is, in fact, within sight. Good gracious, said Aggie. Where? It's a long story, but it may help to while away the long night hours, for I dare say we are here for the night. Did anyone happen to notice the young lady in the first canoe, in the pink tam-o'-shanter? We said we had, all except Hutchins, who of course had not seen her. Mr. MacDonald got a wet cigarette from his pocket, and finding a box of matches on the seat, made an attempt to dry it over the flames. So his story was told in the flickering light of one match after another. End of section 19